You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we talk about COVID and how charts lie, an interview with Alberto Cairo. And now some music. <music> Originally, I wanted to publish this episode much further down the line, but with all the discussions about coronavirus spreading across the world, with all the visualizations there, and some of these being highly cited and a lot of used, just thinking about the John Hopkins dashboard or the animations in the Washington Post, there's so much to be said about it. And so it's really, really timely that I'm speaking with Alberto Cairo, who is an excellent visualization guru. He's actually a professor at the, uh, in Florida for visualization and has a passion for this and has written several books. His last book is called How Charts Lie. And so really, really helpful for every statistician to understand. And also, you will learn about how this book can help you educate your business partners that are non-statisticians. So, stay tuned for an awesome episode with Alberto Cairo. If you haven't done yet, join the LinkedIn group because there I usually post about kind of who is my next interview guest and you can sometimes have Caesar's post and inspire questions. So... Two of my friends actually helped to design the questions for this episode. And maybe you're one that helps with another episode in, in the future. So join my LinkedIn group, The Effective Statistician, and follow me on LinkedIn. This podcast is produced in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. The reduced rate is only £20 for non-high-income countries and £95 for high-income countries. And there's so much coming in terms of virtual content. So if you're working from home and you can't travel, this is the right place for you. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. And today I'm quite excited because I have an interview guest from the US, from Florida, Alberto Cairo. Hi, Alberto. How are you doing? Doing good. How about yourself? Thank you for having me, by the way. This is exciting. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. And I think the topics that we're talking today is more important than ever with, with yeah. all the discussions about Corona going on. With There's lots of visual communication about Corona. There's lots of... Yes, indeed. Um, and case studies about data visualization with, with uh, this topic. And so it comes really, really timely. <laughs> it's, very, it's very timely indeed. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Also, my initial request for you wasn't driven by the this now pre-widespread disease. It was much more by the books you're you're writing, and mm -hmm. uh, that's that's really kind of the background to that. But before mm -hmm. we dive into the books, maybe tell a little bit to the listener about what has created your interest in data visualization in the first place. Sure, I can do that. Well, long story short, I, I am a professor. I am a professor of visualization and explanation and information graphics at the University of Miami. I am a journalist by training, so I have a degree in journalism. I worked in news media for a, quite a long time. I was the head of graphics in several media organizations in Spain and in Brazil later, and then I moved to the United States to teach how to create visualizations. But the, the type of journalism that I used to do was not written journalism. It's uh, graphics journalism. So basically what I did was to um, uh, tell stories, convey information through maps, through graphs, through um, visual explanations, illustrations, things like that. Right? So my entire career has been devoted to explaining things visually. And I I've always been interested in this kind of, uh, this type of communication. I began my career doing mostly um, illustration-based explanations explanations, such as, I don't know, imagine that the NASA sends a new mission to Mars or whatever. So I did, a, I did an infographic explaining how the spaceship was, right? A cutaway of the spaceship showing the different mm -hmm. parts in a 3D model. So I began my career doing that. But then around 2009 or something like that, I started getting interested, interested more and more in the visual, in the visual display of uh, data, namely data visualization. So how to transform quantities into graphics that would let people, readers, extract or spot insights, uh, patterns and trends in large amounts of data. So I started, I started seriously studying the field. Uh, there's plenty of research in the field coming mostly from, from statistics, from computer science, and also a little bit from journalism. So I read a lot about that. I read, I read a lot about cartography, and I started writing about it myself um, just to clear up my ideas and uh, translate basically what I was reading for a more general audience. Yeah, that, well, I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really great because that gives directly kind of the the background for the first three books you you've written mm -hmm. the the nerd mm -hmm. journalism where yeah the title really tells about where you're coming from. Well, ner ner yeah, nerd journalism is actually not a not a book. It was never published as a as a book. Uh, nerd journalism is essentially the draft of my PhD dissertation, which I made available for free online. Um, it's basically a study about how graphics, how, how news graphics have changed in the past 20 years or so. And I describe this transition that happened to me personally, but also happened as sort of like a, a societal level or a professional level in, media, in many media organizations. 20 years ago, newspapers and magazines, uh, graphics desks, used to produce mostly illustration-based uh, visual explanations. But in the past 10 years, they switched their attention towards data visualizations. And so I describe why that happened, why that transition happened, and how Graphics Desk changed. So it's not an actual book. It's a, it's a draft of a dissertation. And the actual books are uh, The Functional Art 
the truthful art. And then the latest one is a, a How Chats Fly, which is my first book for a, a general readership, the, the general public. In terms of the How Charts Lies, that's actually quite a provocative title. <laughs> It is, and, and, and I chose the title on purpose. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> so. So what inspired you to write that book? Well, it, it, it's obvious that in the past, I would say five, ten years, we are experiencing a deluge of bad information, right? Um, the, internet, the internet has opened open the door to both a good information and bad information. Good information in the sense that anybody who is interested in communicating to others can do it. Everybody has sort of like the tools that used to be owned by newspaper owners. The, uh, so the platforms to publish used to be owned by newspapers and magazine owners. But nowadays, everybody can become a journalist. Everybody can decide, well, I have this data set or I have this information. I am going to put it out. And that is great. That's a sort of like a democratization of information spread. But it also has some bad consequences because it, sometimes people get things wrong and they still put things out. Or there are bad actors who put bad information out in purpose. So I started getting worried about these two phenomena, either bad actors misusing graphics to misinform the public or good actors, so people who had the best of intentions, who end up misleading the public anyway because they, you know, make a graphic that is wrong or they don't, they don't understand the data that they are visualizing or because they read too much into the graphic that they are designing. So what I explain in How Chat Sly is that whenever we see a misleading graphic, it is much more likely that that graphic was designed with the best of intentions, but the designer still got things wrong just because they didn't understand the data correctly. Then it is a bad actor trying to mislead us. Although I cover both phenomena, bad actors and good actors who should know better, so to speak. So I started getting worried because I saw what happened in the in, in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election in the US, Trump misusing several maps and several graphs. Um, so cases like, like Sharpie Gate, for example, Trump manipulating a National Hurricane Center a map Uh, that came later. It came after the book was published, but it also explains sort of like the kind of phenomena that I was identifying out there that justified the need for a book like these. The title, as you said, is very provocative. It's how chats lie, but the book is actually not essentially how chats lie. It's a it's a manual on how to better read graphics, how to become a better reader of data visualizations. Because the problem, one of the problems that I also identified throughout the years is that. People, and when I say people, I mean average people like myself. I don't have an expertise on anything other than design and journalism. We tend to take data visualizations at face value. We take a look at the visualization and we assume that the visualization is right. We take a quick look at it and we don't pay a lot of attention to it and we still assume that we understand it. And what I explain in the book is that that's wrong. We should stop assuming that a data visualization is an illustration that can be understood at a quick glance. And we should approach data visualizations as if they were visual arguments that require as much attention as a written argument, if not more. So I try to equip the readers with the tools that they need to approach maps and graphs and charts a little bit more critically and in a much in a little bit more informed way. So our listeners are mostly statisticians and so they could 
really use this book well to inform their colleagues about how they should read the graphs that is coming you know from the statistics department that's coming from medical mm-hmm. affairs but also what is you know coming what is published um in journals in medical mm-hmm. journals mm-hmm. what you see at conferences all these kind of different things because there's a lot of visualizations out there and mm-hmm. um yeah, people talk to it, may point out certain parts of it, but it's that might not actually be, you know, either quite obvious to see from the visualization mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the visualization might actually hide something that, that is in there. I, and I've seen lots of um, presentations uh, lately where you would see things like line charts that shows the efficacy of a treatment long-term and you would see, oh, these line charts look very straight long-term. And so, so the presenter says, here you can see that the uh, treatment effect is maintained over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And then you see in the footnotes, oh, but they have, you know, the, the nominator goes down over time in terms of the, the patients who are treated. Mm-hmm. And you can see that they basically just show the efficacy of those patients that are still on treatment. Yeah, on treatment. And you don't count the ones that stopped getting the treatment. <laughs> that's that's a great example of a chart that can be greatly misleading. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, all right. So I, I would say that, all right, so How Chats Lie is a book for the general public. It's not a book for statisticians. I actually... I mean, I, I gave it to read to several friends of mine who have PhDs in statistics and they still had fun with the book and they laughed at some of the examples, but it may be a little bit too elementary for a statistician. I don't know. that I may be wrong with that. I don't know. But what it could be useful for is to get for a statistician or a data scientist to get inspiration of how to teach these skills to other people. Exactly. Because I it's not that you will learn a lot from the book itself. Perhaps you will learn a, a little bit about the techniques that we could use to translate all this very technical knowledge that you all have into a language that someone like myself can understand. I, I've always seen my work as, a, as if I were a translator. So someone who is a conduit between experts and the general public. So I talk to experts. I try to ask the expert, give me the elevator speech of what, what it is that you are doing. And then what I try to do is to put that knowledge in, or in common words or in common graphics, in graphics that people can understand. So that, how chats like may be useful for, useful for that. At the same time, um, there are other readings or other books that statisticians, I think, can take advantage of to learn about the power of data visualization. So... Um, and to learn how to become better, 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 sorry, better visualization designers. There is, for example, Stephen Fuse's uh, Show Me the Numbers, which is a great introduction to data visualization. There is Col uh, Nussbaumer's uh, Storytelling with Data. That's a very elementary, but still fun to read introduction yeah. to visualization. Excellent there book. Is, yeah, it's yeah. an excellent book. It's very basic. But it gives you sort of like the elementary knowledge. And, and my previous book also, uh, The Truthful Art, it's an introduction to data visualization 
uh, data visualization design for people who want to take the first steps into into this field because it's truly I mean data visualization has a dark side which is what I talk about in how chat slide but at the same time it also has a bright a light side which is that you know it can be powerful it can be useful it can be persuasive and informative and I, I, one thing that I say in both books in the latest one how chat slide and the previous one the truthful artist that I am a great believer in the democratization of data visualization, in the fact that visualization is a little bit like writing. If we all know or we all learn how to write correctly to express our opinions or our takes or our results whenever we do, a, we do research, it can take us a long way to also learn how to visualize those results because when we combine visuals and words together, um, understanding can greatly increase on the part of the reader. So it's great to learn how to write and to talk, but it is also great to learn a little bit about visual design or visualization design in particular. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is, when I talk to other statisticians, some really shy away from mm -hmm. creating visualizations because maybe as a community we are pretty detailed oriented and mm -hmm. we want to see the second decimal behind the numbers and, and things mm -hmm. like that. And that's why I think that's one of the reasons why we usually providing our results in, in table format. I recently heard someone saying, yeah, see, the charts are always kind of biased. I rather want to have these, these tables. They are unbiased. Do you think that tables are less prone to bias compared to charts? Okay. So, Let's let's let me begin by saying again, I'm I'm not a statistician. Yeah. I befriend <laughs> I befriend tons of statisticians and you know I give my books to read to statisticians before they are published and I still make mistakes anyway. <laughs> so I cannot I mean I cannot talk about that particular instance with any sort of expertise. My intuition though is that it is wrong to say that the table is unbiased and the visualization is biased. That's because a table is essentially another way to visually represent information. It's just another kind of visualization. It's another kind of chart. It is A table is a chart. The same way that a line chart is also a chart. They are just two different ways to represent quantities, two ways to symbolize quantities. Numbers, the numbers that you write on a table are symbols that are representing quantities. The line chart that you use to represent a time series is another symbol that you also use to represent quantities. So neither of them is more or less biased. It all depends on how you design them, right? And how sort of like the techniques, how rigorous you are when you're designing it. That said, I understand whether, where the reluctance uh, come from. It's like, Tables have some power to them, right? The tables with, with all the numbers in there give you, you know, all the data, uh, all the data that you're working with. And um, a, a line chart or a bar chart or a pie chart or any kind of visualization is an abstraction that you put on top of all those numbers. So I understand that that reluctance that your visualization may be a too uh, simplistic representation of all your numbers. But you need to think about it this way. Again, a table is a visual representation. A line chart is another visual representation. Each one of them can be used in different, for different purposes. One of the things that I try to explain in my books is that visualization is always purpose-driven. And the purpose that you have in mind whenever representing data should guide your decisions as to how visualize those data. 
So a table is an appropriate way to show data when the purpose that you have in mind is to let people see each individual value on the data set. If that is your purpose, a table is a perfect way to represent your data. But if you want people to see the patterns and the trends behind the data, the table on its own, the numerical table on its own is useless, or at least it's extremely limited. You need to visually encode the data. You need to transform the data. You make the data more physical, right, so to speak, by mapping the quantities onto graphic forms to represent them as maps, as graphs, as charts of different kinds, so people can spot those trends and patterns in the data. It's just a, it's a complementary method of representation. Now, one thing that I would like to say, <laughs> I, I feel that I'm speaking too much, but I feel <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> passionate about all this stuff. It's like, there is another reason why I think statisticians, not all not all statisticians, because some of the best literature about visualization comes from the world of statistics. I'm thinking about William Cleveland and, you know, John, John Tucky. These are all landmarks. They all wrote landmark books in the history of data visualization, right? Tucky, um, exploratory data analysis, William Cleveland, the elements of graphing data, Edward Tufte, the visual display of quantitative information. These are all landmark books in the history of data visualizations, and they were all written by statisticians. So it's not all statisticians. But the fact that so many statisticians feel a little bit reluctant about data visualization has to do with the history of statistics. So Michael Friendly, who is also a statistician based in Canada, has written extensively about the history of data visualization. And he says that in the 19th century, there was a golden age of data visualization, right? Florence Nightingale, Dr. John Snow, and many other figures, some considered landmarks in the history of statistics and epidemiology and mapping, use graphics extensively to represent data. And Michael Friendly calls these the golden age of data visualization. The challenge is that according to Friendly, at the turn between the 19th and the 20th century, there is what he calls, I think that I'm not using the terminology wrong, but I think that he calls it the mathematical turn in his statistics. Statistics became much more mathematized, so to speak. And some statisticians started thinking that visualizations were just illustrations. They were just add-ons, you know, beautifying the data, etc. They started, this is not serious, they used to say. Let's just focus on the numbers. Let's just focus on the mathematical underpinnings of whatever it is that we are doing. And Friendly says that this is the math, this mathematical turn made visualization look less important in the eyes of the statisticians. And then we may have in the history of the relationship between statistics and data visualization, at the beginning of the 70s, the 1970s and the 1980s, we have this new branch of, brand of statisticians who started becoming interested again in data visualization. Again, we have John Tukey, we have William Cleveland, we have Edward Tufte and so on and so forth, who started writing about visualization from the point of view of statistics. And I would say, this is just my personal opinion, that nowadays we are in a new age, in a new golden age of data visualization, mainly not because of statisticians, perhaps, but mostly because of journalists, because journalists, particularly elite media organizations such as the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Berliner Morgan Post, and many other uh, news publications have embraced statistical representations of data, visual representations of statistical data. And it has been proven 
that the public really likes data visualizations. The other day, actually, I wrote that a, a, a little bit of a factoid, but it has just been announced a couple of days ago that the most read piece ever published by the Washington Post online is a data visualization. It's a simulation of coronavirus spread in a population. In, and it's the most viewed piece ever in the Washington Post online. And we have many factoids such as this one, one of the most popular, uh, several of the most popular stories ever published by the New York Times are data visualizations. So there is a reason why we should all try to embrace data visualization a little bit more. It is a powerful means to extract meaning from data, but it is also a powerful means to communicate those data to the public. And one of the functions of statistics, I think, is not just to analyze data, is to also to communicate to other people whatever that you have, whatever it is that you have found. And graphics are very powerful at doing that. I completely agree. It's and I will put a link to all these papers that you uh, and books that you mentioned into the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can I can send you the links to Michael Friendly's article in which he talks about the golden age of visualization. I, I have all these links, so yeah, let's share them with your listeners. Yes. Yeah, and I absolutely love the Washington Post article about the spread of Corona and how different social distance measures can help to reduce the spread. It's it's a really, really nice animation that is easy to understand for people and that combines these flowing dots that represent the people that, you know, mm -hmm. get connected to each other with this um, stacked area charts that is animated over time that shows you how many patients are there, how many Uh, or mm -hmm, how many mm -hmm. people are there, how many turn into patients, how many recover, how many die. And it's a really, really nice visual that gets cited across the world um, and it's recommended quite widely and completely understands that this is one of the Uh, most accessed papers. The most, the, the, the most, most access, one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most, yeah. And it's it's been translated. It's been translated to many, many languages. It literally went viral. Although that that is not a very appropriate way to describe it, but, but it went viral online. It became so so powerful, so so well, popular. It wasn't the main news on the TV here in in Germany. Uh -huh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. So so it's you know, it's, that's tells a lot. <laughs> yeah, it tells so, a lot. There's one interesting thing in, in that is it's, that piece also has this animation in it. Mm -hmm. And I see more and more of these non-static graphs mm -hmm. appearing kind of, you know, there's this nice flowing bubble chart um, and, and flowing data where you see how what Americans do over the day. Mm -hmm. And there's also some really nice uh, visualizations in, in the medical field. Um, mm -hmm. Colleagues of mine and my former team has prepared something that shows how patients evolve over time in terms of their symptoms. And you can see the individual patients, how they, how they get better or worse. So one of the questions I had was, when are these Is this feature of animation really helpful? And when would it become more of a distraction? Well, the, the short answer to that is to go back to the uh, one of the answers that I gave you before when, when I said that visualization is purpose-driven, right? Mm. Whatever, whatever feature you include in a visualization, regardless of whether it is color, 
or animation or interaction, they should all have a purpose. So mm. if you think that your, your visualization can benefit from animation because it will become clearer, then by all means use, use animation. If you think that you need interaction, by all means add interaction. But don't add animation just for the sake of making things move, uh, because that will be the distraction, right? The power of the Washington Post piece is that animation makes a lot of sense, because it, it, we are talking about contagion. We are talking about people moving around and giving the disease to other people. So you need to show those people moving. So it makes sense to use animation in that case. And the animation on the stacked uh, time series area charts, it also makes sense because it reveals the uh, increase of cases over time, little by little. So the animation, that masking of the graphic makes a lot of sense. But that doesn't mean that any graphic that has animation will become super, super powerful or super um, a, a popular. And it also doesn't mean that we all always need to use animation to make a graphic popular. I think that the most iconic image in 2020 is going to be the flatten the curve graphic that we have all seen, right? It's the most iconic, I think, I predict that it's going to be the most iconic image in 2020 and probably one of the most iconic data, it's not a data visualization, it's, a, it's an abstract representation, right? It's not based on actual data, but it's still a visual explanation, a graphical explanation. Well, I predict that it's going to become one of the most iconic uh, graphic, explanation graphics in history. And it's not animated. It's as simple as, as two curves. It's just two curves, completely static, and that's it, right? You don't need anything else. Do you need animation in that case? No. You just need the two yeah. curves. Animations in, in that case will be a little bit of a distraction. It doesn't add anything to the understanding or to the appeal of the graphic. So, again, going back to my, to my answer, whenever we need to think about what to include or what not to include in a visualization, we should always go back to purpose. What is that visualization for? Does animation add anything? Does it make my graphic more understandable or more attractive without making it less understandable? Then by all means, include it. But if I included that feature, animation interaction, you made your graphic more distracting or less understandable because you clutter the presentation, for instance, you should not include it. I think it's a how I like to see it is, is from this design standpoint that also Cole talks about in, in her book. It's kind of take away as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So, so I would do it the same way with the, with the animation. Can I take it away and it still conveys a message very, very powerful yeah. way? I'm going to interrupt you in there though, uh, and to say uh, I am also an advocate for that strategy, right? However, I also think that we can go too far in that strategy. Okay. And that may lead us to graphics that are too Spartan, so to speak, or so, too bare, right? There is value sometimes to add a little bit more color, a little bit more of illustration, a little bit more of visual appeal to a graphic just for the sake of visual appeal, right? So some features that we may include in the graphic may not have a purpose related to making the graphic more understandable, but there may have a purpose in making the graphic more attractive uh, to certain types of readers, right? Uh, I cannot put a particular... I have a nice example for that. As you talked about the flattening the curve uh, mm -hmm. graphic, I've seen where people put two yeah, cats exactly. in it. Yeah, exactly, two cats uh, in it. Yeah, yeah, or two... Where they're saying, you know, 
people don't yeah, look yeah. at, you know, graphs, but they look at cat videos. So I put no, it yeah. in the cats in those that's graphs. A, yeah, that's, yeah. Perhaps that's a little bit too much for me, but I saw another version. <laughs> I saw another version in which uh, someone uh, combined the flatten the curve graphic with two cartoon characters talking to each other about the graphic, right? So yeah. that is fun, right? It's colorful. It adds color, but at the same time, it makes the graphic warmer, so to speak, right? More humane. Sometimes the problem with data visualization is that it looks so geometric. It looks so mathematically oriented, serious, boring, so to speak. It is not boring for me. I love data visualization. It's not boring for you either, right? Because we deal with all this stuff every single day. But for many people, statistics are sometimes a little bit threatening, or they look um, incomprehensible by adding touches of like humanity to our graphics sometimes, right? A little illustration that doesn't obscure the data in one corner of the graphic, adding something to the graphic itself, such an explanation of how to read the graphic, for instance, adding a human face to the data. I'm thinking right now about, for instance, uh, Professor Hans Rosling. Oh, yeah. So as long as I'm talking to statisticians here, I, I, we cannot avoid mentioning Rosling's work. So Rosling, Professor Rosling was a professor of international health in Sweden. He was a statistician and also a medical doctor. And he became incredibly famous in the, in the mid-2000s because of the way he presented data because he, he designed visualizations with the help of his son and his daughter-in-law. But at the same time, he didn't just show the visualizations. Here is my graphic. He put himself in front of the visualization and added this human layer that I'm talking about. We call this in, in visualization, by the way, the annotation layer. So he provided verbal explanations of what the graphic was showing, how to interpret it, the main facts that you should, should not miss in the graphic. Take a look at this, take a look at that. And he did that with a, with, with a humorous uh, tone sometimes and also with a, with a very warm voice. I mean, he was a warm person or at least a warm presenter, a friendly, friendly looking presenter. That's what I mean by adding the human factor a, a, to any visualization whenever it is appropriate and whenever it is possible. I think I still have this videos that he did with the mm. BBC about life expectancy and income. Yeah, the income, wealth income, of the nations. Income, yes. uh -huh. And it's so powerful and it's so nice to watch in this loft setting that, that he gets into and then he explains very, very nicely the graph. It's one of the examples that inspired me to actually do mm -hmm. much more mm -hmm. in, in this visualization mm -hmm. area. Um, and I hope it inspires lots of others he inspired as well. Me. He, yeah, uh, he also inspired a, me yeah, yeah. And, uh, back in 2005, 2006 when he became so popular. Yeah. And nowadays, you know, it, we can reproduce these things as well. You know, so, so we have tools like D3.js uh, library. We have uh, many other tools. We have, you know, lots of options in R. We have lots of options in SAS, which are mostly used within the pharma industry. We have tools like Tableau. We have tools like ClickSense and lots of other areas that we can use to better mm -hmm visualize our data in a in a straightforward way and it's not like you know maybe 20 years ago where it was a really a lot of lot of hassle and time to actually do it there's much more available now and and i think people 
should embark on it and consciously explain that data in a better way. Because I think if you if we as statisticians know our data so inside out, we are also we have the responsibility also to explain the data in the best way so that people take the key learnings with all the strengths and limitations from mm -hmm. the data rather than just providing the tables to someone that then you know further down in the mm -hmm. process sets up some limitations uh, sets up some visualizations not knowing about these strengths and limitations mm -hmm. anymore and being quite far away from the original creation of the results it is so easy nowadays right as, as you're saying it's it's relatively easy nowadays to to basically start doing this uh, type of design thanks to all these tools that are available nowadays i also use r um uh, i also but i use many other tools not only r i also use adobe illustrator which is a design tool that every graphic designer uses i use um data wrapper which is a a, a freemium tool that was created in germany by the way Uh, data Wrapper is a great uh, interactive data visualization tool. I use Flourish, which is another freemium tool that lets you create interactive data visualizations for the web quite easily. There is Tableau, there is Power BI, there is Jump from SAS. There's so many options nowadays. It, it, and none of them is, I mean, some of them are better than others at doing certain things, but any of them can open the door to anybody to, to, to get started doing this kind of work a little bit more. I would say, though, um, I, would, I, would, I would like to warn your listeners about something, though. Um, when, when I am advocate for everyone and anyone to start doing data visualizations, I don't mean that everyone needs to become an expert in data visualization, right? I, I, what I do mean is that everybody can benefit from learning the elementary level, right? From learning the basics of how to create a good chart or a good map, That's something that can be learned and can be learned relatively quickly. But there is also a place for specialization. So in any statistical team, I think that there should be uh, still, you know, people who specialize in knowing the data really, really well and uh, analyzing it, understanding it. So there's specialization in there. The same way that there can be a specialization, you know, among statisticians, people who uh, don't analyze the data so often, but specialize in communicating the data, right? Um, so those are two possible specializations. There may be more, but any anybody and everybody can uh, benefit from learning the basics of all that. That's that's a actually a very good point. Is there's a couple of community projects going on where you can learn about becoming a better better visualization expert, like Makeover Monday, Tidy Tuesday, mm -hmm. and and uh, some wonderful Wednesdays. Mm -hmm. So the, mm -hmm. the PSI and F's by special interest groups recently started. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, there is also the Data Visualization Society. Um, yeah, they also, yeah. Have a, they also have a forum, and you can share work and you know learn from others and ask questions to the community. The visualization community or communities, um, they are quite similar to the R community in the sense that it's it's quite open, it's quite horizontal. And in general, people tend to be very helpful and nice to each other. So if you ask openly, oh, I don't know how to do this in R or whatever, it's very likely that someone in the R community will have an answer for you. 
and, and they will send you some, you know, some recommendations of how to do something. The visualization community or communities, because there may be several ones, they are, they are also quite open and quite helpful. All right. So if you share stuff, for example, in the data visualization society forums, it's very likely that people will reply with constructive suggestions and ideas and tutorials and resources that you can use. So that also makes learning all this stuff a little bit easier and more exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. In terms of getting to a good visualization, how does your personal process for that looks like? So, so do you dive directly into R to create something or how do you uh, No, that? no, I, I, that comes much later. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the first step is, um, and you know, these steps will sound a little bit obvious, but I think that it may still be helpful to lay them out clearly. So the first step is understanding the numbers, obviously. And that's something that I have learned the hard way not to do on my own. Because again, I'm not a statistician, I'm not an expert or anything. So what I always do or I always try to do is to communicate with sources. So actually, this is a piece, uh, some advice that I gave publicly recently when talking about visualizations about the coronavirus spread. I said you know, in my blog, if you want to design anything related to the coronavirus, don't just assume that you can download the data from a public source and visualize it right away. Don't do that. I mean, you can visualize it, but don't publish it, right? If you are going to publish it publicly, first of all, consult with epidemiologists, right? Ask epidemiologists about your graphic and about the data that you're using and make sure that whatever it is that you're visualizing has been vetted by experts before you publish it. Because otherwise, you know, you will probably will make a mistake. Right? So that's a recommendation that I always give journalists to always partner up. Anything that I do, anything that I write, anything that I visualize, particularly if what I write about or what I visualize may have consequences for people's lives, is always vetted by experts, just in case. And I still, even, even though I still make mistakes sometimes, even, even following that process. All right, so once you have understood, understood the data and, and, and you know what the data is hiding, the main patterns or trends or whatever that are worth highlighting, the main insights that, may, that are worth highlighting, the main stories, quotation marks in there, that hide behind the data, once you know those, it's when you start thinking about the visualization. It's when you start thinking about How should I encode my data? How should I transform my quantities into graphic forms? And it may take you know, a few hours to explain this, so I'm not going to do that. I will just refer to the books that I mentioned before to talk about how to choose encoding. So when should I use line charts or bar graphs or pie charts or maps, etc.? There are several techniques that can be used for that. One of the most common mistakes, by the way, that beginners make is to work in autopilot. For instance, and I have several examples of that, I know that if I give my students a data set that contains a geographical variable, such as countries, counties, regions, or whatever of the world, and I give them a data set with obesity rates, income levels, whatever, but one of the variables is geographical locations, and I tell them, design a visualization. The first visualization that they are going to design right away is a map. Right, because it, the, var mm -hmm. the, 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 the data set contained a, a, a geographical variable. And with, when they show me the example, I ask them, why is it a map? Right? That, why is it a map? Because as I said before, visualization is purpose-driven. So what's the purpose of your visualization to show geographic patterns in the data? If that is the case, then a map is the right choice. 
But what about if the, the purpose of your, of your graphic or your visualization is not to show geographic patterns? What about if the, the goal of your visualization is to compare the different regions or to rank the different regions or to do something else with the data? Then the map will not be the right solution. It's not the right encoding. The way that you should show the data is through a bar graph or through a table or through a line chart. Right? It's like, this is why I always say visualization is always purpose-driven. Before you design anything, write down what you want your visualization to communicate. So visualization usually begins not by drawing anything. It begins with writing, right? Writing the purposes of your graphic, writing a short, yeah. writing a short description of the main takeaways that you want people to get from your visualization. Based on that is when you can make design decisions, when you can make choices about encodings, when you can make choices about arrangement, about layout, about a structure, and so on and so forth, and about colors and about style. And it's all, it all boils down uh, uh, to purpose. I think that is a really, really important point that many leave out and that then leads to lots of frustration downstreams because if you don't have a clear purpose that you want to tell, a clear takeaway, then you never know whether you, you're heading to the right graphic. Mm -hmm. And if you work in a team and everybody has a different goals that they want to communicate. Mm -hmm. Let's say one person want to communicate the fast onset of the medication. Mm -hmm. Another one wants to communicate that it has a long, stable maintenance. And mm -hmm. yet another one wants to communicate that the response is consistent across different subgroups. Mm -hmm. All of these three things, you would come up with very different visualizations. And they may be complementary to each other. In, in a case like that, it may yeah. be worth thinking about not just one single graphic, because it's impossible to communicate that through a single visualization, but about several visualizations that are complementary to each yeah. other. Mm -hmm. But you get, you know, then you show it first to the first one and you get feedback and then you go to the next one and you get contradicting feedback and then you go to the third one and you get yet other feedback. Mm -hmm. And because you haven't clearly defined and clearly also agreed within your team what the goal is. And that's, what's the goal of the graphic, yeah. yeah. And, and when we talk about, by the way, when we talk about main takeaways, uh, I don't really mean that you need to provide sort of like a single story. The takeaway could be what the task, what is the task that the visualization enables? That's the takeaway. It's like, what does, what does the visualization let you do with the data, lets you see in the data? It could be the ups and downs in a time, time series, in which case you, you need a line graph and so on and so forth. So you don't need to make a, an explicit point in your visualization. The takeaway of your graphic could be just enabling a task, seeing something in the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very, very good, uh, important point. Okay, once you have that done, what do you do next in your workflow? Well, I uh, so depending on how how large the project is, I may also think about um, creating several graphics, not just one, depending on the complexity of the messages that you want to communicate. So, you know, you may want to think about how to build a narrative based on graphics and, and words, right? Some people like to use the, the, the term story, building a story. Story is a term that we use all the time in journalism, right? Let's build a story, right? When, I, when we talk about stories, though, obviously, we don't talk about fictional stories, right? Things that are made up. We are we're made up. We are talking about narratives. So how do you mm -hmm. build a narrative that may help 
readers make sense of the data. So I start thinking about how to arrange uh, several graphics in a layout or how to arrange them sequentially and linearly, first, second, third, etc., and how they connect to each other in a narrative way. Um, I also think about, you know, the, the annotations that I can add to the, to the graphics to put the data in context. I think about, you know, a methodology section. Sometimes it is worth, even if you're communicating with the general public, I also think that it's worth adding a short methodology section at the end of any news story that uses data. This is something that is um, some news organizations are already doing. Uh, 538, um, ProPublica, for instance, in the United States, whenever they deal with large data sets, they always include a methodology section in the news stories at the end. Like if it were a scientific paper, it's only, yeah. only, also that, it's only that it's not as detailed, obviously, and as technical as if it were a scientific paper, but it follows sort of like the same, same idea as a scientific paper. Let's be transparent about the data and how we have manipulated the data or explored the data. So I think that that is worth, that is worth doing. Yeah, that's basically it. The, na- the narrative is the, next, is the next step. Then it is worth also sometimes, often if possible, uh, testing your graphic. So it's like showing your graphic to people. Um, this can be done scientifically or non-scientifically or systematically or non-systematically, so to speak, but I think that both of them is, is valuable. So if you can do it systematically, right, depending on how ambitious your project is, it may be worth putting together a survey or putting together a, a formal focus group, etc., to show your graphic to people who you believe are representative of your readership, just to get their reactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you cannot do it formally, just showing it to friends, family, acquaintances, and letting them read the graphic, and then without guiding them, just show them the graphic and say, you know, this graphic is about such and such, and now read it, let's talk five minutes from now, and tell me what you learned from the graphic. Right, just having that conversation as unscientific and uh, unstructured as it sounds, it can still be extremely valuable because it can show you what an, an average person like myself may get right or may get wrong from the graphic that you are designing. So testing is also part of that process. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very very important point. Um, I've done set in the past as well where i've shown graphics to to physicians and i'm remembering where it was about um psoriasis showing psoriasis data to dermatologists they were directly jumping at the colors and saying oh mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. here's this the, the patients they need to go from red to green because it's not from kind of the traffic light it's actually because red for if you talk about psoriasis is associated with the red scaly plaques on the mm-hmm, skin that's mm-hmm. a psoriasis yeah, they are associated yeah mm-hmm. and and green is kind of makes it people think of clear skin and so mm-hmm. and these things you only know when you actually talk to your yes. readers because red might means something completely different when you talk, for example, to cardiologists or to mm-hmm. other physicians. So, so these associations you only get through the through the co-creation. And of course you can check how how fast people can yeah, really yeah, take. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that I so connecting to what you're saying. Um, so I've I've been working in visualization of different kinds, again, infographics, visual expansions or data visualizations for more than 20 years now. And in 
being so experienced, one thing that I have learned the hard way is to be much more humble about my own assumptions. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of my career, about, about, I, I was full of hubris. I knew everything. I knew how to communicate everything. People will understand this graphic, et cetera, et cetera. But throughout the years, I learned that I usually like to repeat this uh, sentence in my, in my talks. What you design is not what people see. And, and the only way you can make sure that what you design is what people see is if you talk to people. If you talk to the people who are going to consume your graphic. Now, that doesn't mean, and I also warn people about this in, in talks and in my books, that you need to oversimplify, you need to oversimplify your graphics to make them more understandable, right? Sometimes the solution to a misunderstanding on the part of the reader is not to change the graphic that you're designing, but to include an explanation of how to read the graphic. And the reason why I'm saying this is that coming from the news media world, um, many years ago, I tried to use a scatter plot in a story, right? Mm-hmm. A scatter plot, which is a super traditional way to represent data. Anybody in statistics know, knows how to use a scatter plot. But 10 or 15 years ago, scatter plots were nowhere to be seen in news publications. And the reason why that happened is that news editors were very reluctant to use that graphic form because they said, with very good, you know, very good arguments, said people will not understand this graphic, right? So let's not publish a scatter plot just because readers will not understand it. There is wisdom in that decision, but at the same time, it is also self-defeating because my argument has always been, if you never show a scatter plot to people, how are people going to learn how to use a scatter plot? Yeah. So it's like a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you believe that the graphic form or the visualization that you're using is the best way to represent your data and you have not found a better way, don't get stuck in the fact that people don't understand it. If that is the best way, according to your own judgment, to represent the data, use that graphic, but then be prepared to explain how to read it. This is why I think, again, going back to Hans Rosling, Rosling also showed the way. In the BBC video that you mentioned, if you remember, in that short snippet from his documentary, The Joy of Stats, the first thing that he does is not to show data. The first thing that he does is to explain how to read a scatter plot. Here is the x-axis. Here is the y-axis. Here are a bunch of bubbles. Each one of the bubbles represents a country. The size of the bubbles is proportional to the population. He was explaining the grammar of the graphic, right? Before he showed any data. And then he showed the scatter plot, right? That's how you increase visual literacy, which is something that I really, really care about, increasing visual visual literacy among the general public. So that's public service, right? So again, don't refrain from using a complex visualization just because you know that people will not understand it. First of all, try to find better ways to represent the data. But if after trying different things, you still think that your original graphic is the best way to do the to represent the data. Use it, but then explain it. Awesome. That's a very, very good summary, actually, also in terms of the key takeaways from today is that there's we need to constantly improve our skill sets in terms of um be, becoming better in explaining things. We need to test what we are doing with others. We need to invest time to make sure that the goals that we want to communicate with this visualization are actually met and that we work together with others to make sure that we reach this goal. And thanks so much 
for this awesome uh, interview, Alberto. Is there any final takeaway other than that that you would like to hear the listener? I, I actually have another. I have another final takeaway. Have fun. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> visualization. Yeah, visualization is not only informative, powerful, useful. It's also fun. It's fun to create maps. It's fun to create graphs. It's fun to create information graphics and visual explanations. So you know, learn to enjoy what you are doing, and that you be, you will be a better professional because of that. If you enjoy what you do, right? I, I, so that will be another final piece of advice for everybody. And, and thanks, thanks again for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. And please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find all the show notes, all the references that we discussed about and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. And please tell your colleagues about it. If you like this podcast, spread the word so more can benefit from it. And like always, Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.